So as we pull uh, this series together, I want to start by uh, naming some names. Three different categories of names. When you know what they have in common, just yell it out, okay? First one, uh, John Barton, Richard Luger, William Hudnut, Mayors of Indianapolis, very good. I didn't hear a whole lot of younger ones yelling those out. Just a little history, whatever. All right, let's try Maureen Connolly, Margaret Smith Court, Steffi Graf, women's tennis champions. By the way, those three are the only ones that, from what I read, the only ones who won the Grand Slams, which meant all four championships in one year. And there are plenty of incredible tennis champs, women, uh, female tennis champs, but they won the Grand Slam. Okay, last category. Uh, Reverend Oda Shaw, Miss Mary, Mr. Sal, Miss D, Don Morehead, and Dan Spader. Very good. People in my life that influenced me, you don't know none of them, but nice guess. You know me well enough. Dude, gotcha, love that. Uh, they were. They were people who had a tremendous impact on my life then, and one of them still living today is still really a spiritual mentor to me. Reverend Odishaw was one of the first pastors I remember as a, as a kid. And whenever he would call your house, again, there was no, there was no uh, call ID, so you'd pick up the house and go, Yonan House, and the first things out of his mouth, are you one of the best? And I knew who it was. Reverend Odishaw, this is Rob. Are you one of the best? Well, you know, the aunt, there was only one answer to him. The answer was yes, because of what you could be in Christ. And he would do that to you in person, anybody. Even if my parents picked up the phone, are you one of the best? I remember that man's love for people, knowing our name and loving God in such a way absolutely radically impacted my heart. Uh, and then there was uh, Ms. D. Ms. D, Dolores Solomon, she was over like the children's ministry segment. And I honestly don't remember what age I was. It's a blur after a certain point. It'll happen to you. But Ms. D was over the area, and, and I, my friends and I could be a little rambunctious. I'll, I'll give you a space to allow the shock to, you know, because I know that's probably like, what? So she would, like, she would yell at us to get our, you know, Robbie, stop it. And as soon as she does that to me, she'd turn and look at my cousins and friends and wink. So we all knew when we got yelled at, she was winking at our friends. So she had this incredible way of kind of reminding us of what was important because she wanted us to know Jesus, even at a young age. But she did it with humor, and she loved us well. She made us laugh, and she had a rambunctious bunch of kids to deal with. I love Miss D. Her, her son and daughter, dear friends of mine, uh, grateful for her. And then it was Dan Spader. Dan was my youth pastor my senior year of high school. And Dad, Dan had an infectious love for Jesus. So much so that Dan introduced me then and continues to this day to draw people in to learn to study Jesus and using the harmony of the Gospels, which back in August I kind of talked about a significant amount of time. Um, but Dan's love for Jesus and discipling others for Jesus, who then disciple others, it just it, it absolutely grabbed my heart. And to this day, I, I call him, connect with him whenever I can. Those are a list of people that really, unless I wish you could meet them, I wish I could sit you all down with one after the other and see these are the rich people in my heritage. But I'd love, who are the ones for you? Who, who would you give a list of? And then who would name you on their list? That to me is the most fun. I think that would be awesome. Well, I find it interesting that in the scriptures, and in particular in this letter we've been looking at, 
this letter to these group of believers in this city of Western Turkey today, almost a fourth of the letter is a list of names. Some of whom we know nothing about. They're just names. And I think those names remind us something. That God was working in the lives of individual people then, of all walks of life, and it was important enough to put those names in there as well as he continues to work in individual lives of people who are impacting someone, who are impacting someone, and on it goes. In the app notes for you, for some other day if you want, I took as many as I could of the lists that Paul had of names of people just from his writings, and it'd be an interesting look for you because sometimes you see, oh, a name over here, and then Mark traveled with him over there, and Demas traveled with him over here, and oh, wait a minute, over here they mentioned that Luke was a doctor, you didn't see that somewhere else. So you pick up little things, and it's just this thread of it all together, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a great study to, to run yourself through. Enjoy, have fun. But what I'm going to do today is follow the, the way of Jesus, as it were, to tell a story. He was incredible at telling stories of, the, of everything in the moment where people could feel and know, oh, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And I'm doing so, actually taking a long story from the book Colossians Remixed, which is, has chapter 3, has a full story, and they, and they took the name of Nympha, one person mentioned in Colossians with nothing else really said about her. And so just, just a little bit about her, and then they took and combined her story and brought in Lydia, who's mentioned in Acts. And uh, that book I read because I had learned along the way as a youth pastor from a guy named Gordon McDonald, and he recommended to people in ministry in particular um, to have both offensive and defensive times of study. And the way he described it was this. Defensive study was, and for me as a youth pastor, I knew what this was. Anytime you were speaking or training leaders or talking or giving, sharing a devotional thought and you were preparing, that was defensive study. And I, you could change the language for it. But what was interesting to me was he said it was critical for you as pastors to have offensive study. You're just reading for you. You're studying a thread in the Bible just for you. You're reading a book just for you. What was interesting for me was along the way, how many times my offensive study would birth a series because God would speak to it, even in books that weren't written by believers. Well, this book, Colossians Remixed, came to me just because I was intrigued by the title and some of what I saw. And so I'm going to take their story, chapter 3 from that book, condense it and edit it. Because there's just something about stories that grab our heart and imagination in a way that obviously Jesus knew and modeled for us. While I read the story, I'm going to encourage you to do two things. One, try to immerse yourself in that moment. Whoever you want to be in that story, wherever you want to be, what was it like back then when Paul was writing to those people? What was it like to live back then? And while your imagination is immersing yourself in that story, Keep your peripheral antenna up. How do you see your world today being impacted in similar ways? So there you go. See what you can do to keep both of those going. My name is Nympha, and as a textile manufacturer, I make some of the most sought-after purple cloth in the region. And as you can imagine, my business requires me to travel a lot, and so it was during a visit to Colossae that I met another textile merchant named Lydia. And she told me something that rocked my world. She told me about a man named Jesus who she, she believed to be the one true God 
and Savior of the world. I was flabbergasted. How on earth could a woman of such intelligence say such a thing? This was not only a bold statement, it was incredibly subversive. Because we all knew Caesar was the one who was our Savior, was the one who brought peace and brought prosperity. She was out of her mind. She talked about the things Jesus taught. She talked about the way he lived. And then, which was kind of baffling to me, was how one of our very own Roman governors crucified him, had him put to, put to death. But as if that wasn't enough, he was dead for three days, and he rose from the dead. And not only that, people saw him. My head was spinning. Before I could even articulate a thought, Lydia continued. This is why we proclaim him as Lord. Forgiveness of sins comes only through Jesus. Peace is given only through Jesus. And he will come again to establish his rule and make all things right. She went on to say that throughout the empire, there were groups of people who also worshipped Jesus as Lord, gathering together from all walks of life, all in the same room, citizens of Rome and non-citizens of Rome, male and female, rich and poor, slave and slave owner. Well, what on earth would you do if you heard such a thing? It was all so bizarre, and it was dangerous. Lydia, I said, why on earth would you believe such a story? Why would you ever worship anyone other than Caesar? Look at you. You've got money, prestige, and social standing. Why would you risk it all? Think of what could happen. Somebody could be listening and think that you don't appreciate all that the emperor and the empire has done to bring peace and prosperity to our world and to you. And don't you see the trouble you could get into? I mean, you're rich and all, but you're still a woman, and you could lose it all just like that. But that's the point, she said. I don't believe Caesar is our savior. I don't believe that he brought peace and prosperity, and I don't worship him or any of the gods and goddesses anymore. I was stunned. Look, Nympha, she said, are coins. They have packs, the goddess of peace on one side, but weapons emblazoned on the other. Our gateways depict the emperor's victory over his enemies. The peace of Caesar, the supposed savior of the world, comes only by the sword and is maintained only by the sword. Intimidation, violence, fear, and power. Not so with Jesus. In fact, it is quite the opposite. And his peace isn't just for those who have. It is for everybody. While Lydia was telling me it was nothing less than treasonous, and when I told her so, she acknowledged that there were followers of Jesus who were being persecuted and intimidated to this day. But in spite of all that, those same followers did not shrink back in fear, but their faith grew even deeper. I tossed and turned all night. I couldn't sleep, but awoke in the morning still unconvinced. I mean, everything around me reminded me that Caesar was Lord, and it's all I knew and experienced as a child. But as I went about my business in the weeks that followed, I was unsettled in my spirit, 
because I began to notice afresh in ways I'd not noticed before that there were images of Caesar everywhere, in the market, in the square, in the theater, at the gymnasium, and in all of our temples. Even my house was full of those images. But it wasn't just what I looked at. The whole rhythm of my life was shaped by the empire. The more I looked, the more confused and dumbfounded and disturbed I became. Either Caesar was blessed by the gods and reigned as our Lord, or this Jesus whom Lydia worshipped was the one true Lord. It could not be both. I grew more and more intrigued by this way of Jesus, which was just not about violence and intimidation, which is what the empire was built on and sustained with, but grace and forgiveness and love. So I wanted to meet others like Lydia, but I didn't dare do it near my house. So I traveled and went to Colossae, and that's where I saw men and women, slaves and free, Jews, barbarians, and Romans all meeting together in peace, all talking about this Jesus, praying to him, and sharing a meal in remembrance of him. This isn't to say that they didn't struggle. Social divisions and hierarchical relationships that have been entrenched for years don't change overnight. But at least these people struggled, sharing a common vision and a hope that was rooted in Jesus and it was kept alive with an astounding meal where no one appeared to be superior to the other. I was amazed at the love they had for one another and for this Jesus whom they worshiped. And the more time I spent with them and the more I learned about this Jesus, the more I wanted to join them in following him. And the more I followed Jesus, the less enamored I became with Caesar and the empire that I cherished so dearly all my life. It was simply a matter of time then till I fell to my knees and gave my life to Jesus. I experienced a level of freedom and joy I had never known. And as if that's not enough, it wasn't not much longer before I started to have people in my home to also talk about Jesus and pray to him and share a meal together. We, who would have thought that I would have done that? Certainly not my family, friends, or coworkers. In fact, that made it very difficult for me. But not just for me. All over the empire, followers of Jesus were continuing to experience tension as we bumped up against the values and the practices of the empire of our day. We have so many questions. So many questions. How do we live then in this place? And so you can imagine how excited we were to hear that a letter from Paul was going to be read at church because he could bring us maybe those answers for how to follow Jesus in the midst of this empire. There's just something different about a story. And so what were you thinking and feeling as I read that condensed version of their story? Could you put yourself in their place? And what did you see and feel in your peripheral vision about living you, your life today here in our world now? Well, I offer you a mid-sermon reflection moment while the story is fresh in our minds. Nympha said in that story this, the whole rhythm of my life was shaped by the empire. What are the unhealthy rhythms of life 
that you feel drawn to just because of where we're living in this time of our own history in life? What are those rhythms you feel tugged toward? Nympha also said in that story, the more I followed Jesus, the less enamored I became with Caesar and the empire I cherished so dearly. What do followers of Jesus today cherish that citizens of our world don't? And in fact, they probably look at us silly. How would you answer that for you? On the one hand, I definitely wonder, if Paul were to write us today to Grace Church at Fishers, what would he write? Would it be the same thing? I mean, we are wearied. We are wearied by hatred and anger and division here at home and beyond. Compounded, by the way, for the last two years, we've been figuring out how to live with a virus that's impacting us in, a, impacting us in ways none of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. And as if that's not enough, there are conflicts all over the world that are killing thousands every week. In Afghanistan and in Yemen, in Ethiopia, in Syria, and the Congo, and Lord in heaven, and in the Ukraine before our very eyes. What would Paul say? I tend to think the bones of the letter would stick. I tend to think the essence of that 2,000-year-old letter has as much rich meaning and faith-strengthening material today for us as it was for them back then. God is still speaking through that letter, his word. And so the question for us is this. What is that letter saying to us? How can we walk away from today in the midst of what we are facing in the empires of our world with strength? In a way, the next few moments are simply a review of the past few weeks, but Lord, and, um, Lord willing, maybe in a fresh way. First off, how? Because they remind us, that letter reminds us that Jesus is the one true God. There is no president, there is no prime minister, uh, there is no king, there is nobody higher than him. And while it may feel like things are out of control, he is still the one that is reigning supreme over all. He came to us in human form, not as a sculptor or a mysterious uh, mythical creature. It was Jesus who lived, died, and rose again in human form. He is still our Savior, and he is still the Lord. There's none other, and he is the true king. And, and throughout that letter, Paul reminds us, and especially in that poetic section in chapter 1, which we will return to in a few moments. So first, that letter reminds us, he is still the one in control. He is still the one that's sovereign over all. But secondly, Paul reminds us very strongly to be careful lest we drift. There's responsibilities, but there's opportunities, and there's temptations, and there are clearly values of the empires in our world that are, draw, that are trying hard to suck us away into their way of thinking and living. Paul per pulls back the curtain to, those, to the world's unceasing and insidious claims that are claiming authority through endless human arguments and philosophies and an innumerable number of, innumerable number of idols they had then and we have today, which all lead to oppression and destruction. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He uses a variety of images, as we've said, to re-envision our imagination and strengthen our faith. And so to recall that for us, I've combined two sections of the letter to Colossae for us to read responsibly, because there is something about declaring words out loud and verbally that impact our thinking in our hearts. So join me as I, we read responsibly. 
Continue to believe this truth and stand firmly. Don't drift or move away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. And now, just as you have accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built on him. Let's all read this together. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Stand firm. Don't drift. Keep following him. Deepen your roots in him and build your whole life on him. That's what will keep you from drifting, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Or put simply these two points in one phrase, which Brad did so well last week. Jesus is the true, Jesus is the true king, so hold on to him tightly. But how do we do that in, this, in the world that we live in with so much that could pull us either way? Again, that's standing firm by setting our eyes on Jesus and resetting them on Jesus as often as we need. The first setting comes where, in like the story with Nympha, at some point, no matter what age we are, 5 or 35, we make that decision in that moment when we say, Jesus, you have my life. I surrender my life to you. That's the initial gaze-setting moment. But we're still human. We're on this side of eternity. And we're, we're not perfect at We're per being perfected because of Jesus. But we need resetting all the time. And that resetting can come from a variety of ways, as Brad mentioned last week. Just a few. Time, obviously, alone with God. Um, uh, simple breath prayers that we could speak throughout the day. I don't know how many times I do that. And how many times the prayer is just, Lord, help me. And I wonder if when I get to heaven, God's going to say, look at all the times you prayed that prayer. That's a lot of times. And I heard them all. I heard them all. They were resetting, taking those moments to breathe those breath prayers in the midst of our day. Thirdly, there's also just being in tune with God's Spirit because He can use any and every life circumstances that you're going through or that you're experiencing just in a normal day to use that as a moment to help you reset your gaze. As a kid, I used to ride my bike um, on the north side of Chicago down Foster Avenue to the beachfront. And you, there's a great 15-mile uh, bike lane on there, bike and walk, whatever. I used to do that all the time. And a, a couple years ago... Um, I've been starting to bring my bike stuck in my car, so when I go see friends and friends and family, and I have the opportunity to do that ride again, um, I do it. And so I, I get on my road bike, and it's funny how the things I remember doing when I was a kid all kicked in, because they're important when you ride in the, street, in the street in the city. So you ride down Foster Avenue, going to the beach. On the right-hand side are parked cars. On the left-hand side is moving traffic. And you got the side view mirror on the one car sticking out, and the side view mirror on the other, and so you're going straight. And you got people going back and forth. A ball may come out between the cars. You got traffic signals. And every experienced bike rider in the city has their eye on the car, three and four cars ahead. What you're looking for is the person who just parked the car and is going to get out of the car. And are they looking or are they not looking? And experienced riders know if they look in their rear view mirror or their side view mirror and you make eye contact, you're pretty much safe to go, though you got your hands close to the brakes. If they're not looking, heaven help somebody. And on more than one occasion, the door has swung open and I've become a very good friend to the person who was driving. I mean, literally, my face is this far from their face and they weren't expecting to see that. They just opened the door to gather a car. 
But that's simple life experience for me. Even though, I, especially when I experienced that as a teenager and a young adult, it was a reminder, oh yeah, stay focused. Set your gaze in a place. If there are distractions everywhere. And even recently, to do it all over again, and God just reminding me, in a simple moment in the midst of my life, how many do you have? Because he's alive and at work in you, and he can use the life experiences that you are going through to help you reset your gaze back on Jesus. This real-world experience is a good reminder for me. It was then, and it continues to be today. And no matter what the circumstances or no matter what the distractions are, I can set my eyes on Jesus. But there are days when it is incredibly difficult because I do worry often about my children and about my grandchildren and the world in which they are growing up in. There are days I wonder what will come of our world And then in those days, I have another way that I need to reset my gaze on Jesus, and that is by remembering some of God's promises. One of my favorite is in Psalm 100, and it says this, for the Lord is, what does it say next? For the Lord is good. Anything that's not good is not from him. A lot of what we see happening in our world today, that's not from him. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues, what's the next word? Forever. It didn't stop 50 years ago. It didn't stop two years ago because his unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. That verse really came alive to me after years as serving as a pastor of student ministry. All the conversations I had with worried parents worried grandparents, worried teenagers wondering about what do I do after high school, worried young adults about what do I do with my life? Do I work? Do I go to school? If I go to school, what do I do after that? What kind of a, I mean, just worry, worry. And that passage I would use often to speak to parents and grandparents. God did not leave your children or your grandchildren alone this generation. He is going to work in this generation in ways different than yours and mine. They're growing up in a different world. But if that promise is true, and I believe it is, then he will work in your your sons and your grandsons and your daughters and your granddaughter's generation. So cling to that. And I would look in the eyes of teenagers who were just so worried. I don't know what school to apply for. I don't know if I should get a job. God did not leave you alone. He was only with your parents' generation. He will walk with you. In fact, he will walk with you in ways he didn't walk with us. And when you stand up and tell us, we're going to know that that promise is true. And young adults who wonder, what do I do with my life? There's so many options. I just bring you back. God is good. He is good. That resets my eyes, because there are days I need it more than others. Wow, that that totally surprised me. But there's another way that I reset my gaze, and I am grateful to those who've gone before us, and they have gone through the most horrendous circumstances we can ever imagine, and we wonder how did they stay true to Jesus in the middle of that. So I want to read how they did it. I want to read how God met them. And one of my favorite persons to look back to is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in World War II, and he openly opposed Hitler, and he lost his life as a result of it. Sadly, that was just before the war ended. But among the wonderful things that he said was this, may God in his mercy lead us through these times. 
Could we not say that today? But above all else, may God lead us to himself. That man who stood against a tyranny, much of like we're seeing in other places of the world today, had his eyes set on Jesus in the middle of the worst circumstances. And here's what my encouragement is from him. If he could do it, cannot I? Because if God could meet him and all the other brothers and sisters of the faith who've gone before us, they can help us reset our, mind, our gaze on Jesus so we can stand firm, not drift, keep following him, deepen our roots in him, and build our whole life on him. That's really the message of this 2,000-year-old letter, which is still life-giving to people who are following Jesus in every corner of the world. With that in mind, I bring this series to a close, returning to that poetic section in, in the first chapter in the book of Colossians, that little letter, verses 15 to 20. And I'm going to read to you from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that section. Consider this an exclamation point to the series. A, a way to put a stake in the ground to reminding us again of what is the most important of all. We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank of angels, everything, God started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it together right up to this very moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes it and holds it all together like a body, like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he is there towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. And not only that, but all the broken and the dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death his blood that poured down from the cross. A 2,000-year-old letter that encouraged those people who so desperately were looking for encouragement then is perfect for us today. So let us close the series with a word of prayer before we have a time to sing out the last words to remind us of Jesus' supremacy overall. Father, I can only imagine how our brothers and sisters in bomb shelters of Ukraine are crying out to you. I wonder how they are singing the same songs with a fervor of heart. And we can gain strength from them as we support them and those in other parts of our world, both here in our own neighborhoods, in our own homes, and to places who knows where. So thank you for the reminder that you are good and you are faithful in every generation. Help us, Lord Jesus, to keep our eyes so fixed on you, to grow so deep in you, that every age of every person in this room lives in such a way that those around go, if that's what following Jesus is, I'm in. We look to you and pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.